You're listening to a podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe. The conference took place at Shakespeare's Globe on the 12th and 13th of June, 2017. This podcast features a recording of the concluding roundtable. The discussants were Stephanie Elsky from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Joe Mashenka from the University of Cambridge, Patricia Palmer from Maynooth University, and Nathan Szymanski from Slayman Fraser. The roundtable was chaired by David Lee Miller from the University of South Carolina. Welcome back. My name is David Miller. I'm uh, moderating this closing panel, and what that means to me is that um, I'm sure you're all Tom Waits fans, as I am, and so you'll know that on the Baddest Me album, there's this lovely, kind of mournful line in one of his songs, everybody's talking at the same time. <laughs> My job is to just to make sure that that doesn't happen, and since it wouldn't happen anyway, I have a thoroughly minimal role to perform here, especially since, as you know, we're not really doing introductions. I have Stephanie Elsky here, I have Joe Moshenska, Patricia Palmer, and Nathan Zamansky. They're gonna open by making some brief closing remarks, then it's gonna be open to all of you, and I will point rudely to try to indicate who should speak. Um, and then we'll probably have some very ending remarks from our host and maybe from Stephanie as well. So I was going to um, trace out the importance of something that I think has been an undercurrent and keeps, um, that keeps emerging um, that struck my attention, um, the importance of temporality and timing that's really been throughout the whole conference. Um, and I wanted to think about this um, in terms of the different papers that we've had um, and what they might suggest about temporality, um, performance, and poetry, but also our own kind of experiential, uh, discussions of the experiential temporality um, of poetry and performance. Um, so even from the very beginning, um, Will West sort of um, uh, reminded us of this notion of the monument um, and that a crystallization sort of into action, of action in, in time. Um, and Simon Jackson's um, piece, thinking about the epithalamian as moving between fixity and flux in a way that I think was kind of emblematic of performance more generally. And I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, and then in the, um, the uh, material and the non-human, um, there was a lot of talk about sort of invocation in the future, but also this notion that Joe brought to her attention of extinction. Um, and I thought, you know, we could chase this in a lot of papers um, today as well, um, but I also thought of what we kind of learned from the research in action in terms of delay becoming a kind of a performative resource. Um, and the stanza, which seems so essentially poetic, um, being something that had a very kind of dramatic life and that the actors understood as having a dramatic life of the sort of stopping and pausing and timing of that. Um, so um, I think this is one place where performance and poetry really met in a very interesting way and kind of what emerged was the, the similarities um, between sort of poetic timing and, po and performative and sort of dramatic time that we often kind of think of differently. We, we do think of Spencer already as a poet who is obsessed with distorting um, temporal chronologies, manipulating time, um, and, um, and there's been such wonderful work on that. Um, people are here um, and people who aren't. Um, but I think now we've, we've been asked to also think about um, 
the way that he might be either drawing on the resources of drama and of performance to think about sort of the, his tempor the temporalities that he plays with. Um, so moving out from something like um, the Britain monuments um, uh, to think about um, these other sort of local moments. Um, and, but at the same time, we can think about the way in which dramas and, you know, Shakespeare's showing us the way that, Spencer's <laughs> showing us the way that drama is drawing on poetic temporalities um, in ways that we might tend to sort of ignore and think about, you know, the five hours passage on the stage. Um, so I thought um, that was uh, a, a really interesting sort of connection that emerged for me and that seemed to just keep coming up um, and not sort of, not, never sort of the explicit topic, but it seemed really important to kind of see how that traced through and um, to think about sort of how this asks us to look forward and to keep thinking about, um, you know, reconfiguring when we think about um, drama and poetry as having, um, you know, connections in terms of the temporalities and, the, um, and, the, and, and whether Spencer sort of takes from drama or whether drama is, is taking from poetry in ways that we, we don't tend to focus on. Um, and, um, and I think he also, you know, offers us a kind of insight into the debate that I think is really interesting in performance studies um, about the ephemeral nature of drama. So I think that, you know, that for a long time, performance studies saw that it's constitutive drama of drama that's ephemeral, um, but there's been a really interesting pushback against that notion. I'm thinking of, you know, Will West thinking about um, um, early modern performance as a management of the rhythms of repetition. Um, and sort of not only, you know, in terms of repertory, but in terms of sort of what gets left over. And I think the, that the, the kind of flux and fixity of the poetic um, actually sort of access, or bolsters that notion um, that we don't only need to think of drama as the ephemeral um, and poetry as the kind of the fixed. Um, so that was sort of one um, valence of temporal that I thought was really interesting. The other one was our kind of own temporal frameworks as scholars um, and as viewers and as uh, uh, participants in drama. Um, I thought it was really interesting that this notion of slow reading kept coming up, um, and, but it was associated more with watching the actors, because I think we often think of slow reading as deeply associated with poetry and poetic interpretation, and like that's when we slow down, but it was interesting to, in this, um, for this event to kind of flip that on its head, and for us to start to think about the dramatic as a slowing down, um, uh, uh, and yeah, a resource for slowing ourselves down. Um, and then just the, I guess, the final thing I'll say about temporality is I was also struck by our notions of sort of precedence um, that we sort of, uh, I think, came up against multiple times. Um, so, you know, who comes, and I'm even sort of implying it, you know, when I was talking about poetry and drama earlier, you know, who comes first? Um, I think uh, Emma Smith yesterday nicely kind of was like, well, you, know, you might, you think, um, that the drama comes first with the speech prefixes and then Spencer's kind of drawing on it. But actually, well, maybe we need to flip that around and, and reorganize our kind of chronologies. Um, and I thought um, Willie Maley's talk today uh, did that also really well. Um, so I wanted us to I maybe leave another kind of methodological question, I guess, on the table of um, how do we want, when we're sort of thinking about performance, 
um, and um, Spencer and poetics more generally, um, do we want to, is our start, should our starting point be what comes first, right, what's the precedent question, <laughs> or are we, do we want to think, I think somebody used the, I, I think Willie Neely used the term the lattice work, um, that kind of um, asks us to, to move away from the question of the origin point and then the kind of influence point. Um, so I think, yeah, I wanted to, to emphasize those questions, and this is not, this is very unrelated, but I keep thinking that we never um, perform the glosses the Shepherd's Calendar, we kept talking about <laughs> Shepherd's Calendar is so performative and was a locus, a real locus, but the glosses never got performed, but I think we do think of the glosses as um, having a persona, very much so. Going <laughs> to Kalamazoo, they actually performed the glosses. Oh, yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that it could have been pretty funny, you know, but so where do we a sort of un maybe unconsciously draw our limits? of performance, that we maybe something looks like a scholarly apparatus, even though we know um, it's, it has a persona, um, do we want to, I think it's an invitation to keep opening up uh, our, our, what we are thinking about in terms of Spencer and performance, um, and also um, think about when we're, um, when the mise-en-page is so strong that it's hard to to perform, to think of it as performance, but again, to go back to some of the opening comments, the mise en page itself becomes a, can be thought of as the performance of inscription. So I guess I also wanted to, to think about more ways we could keep opening this question. Um, I'm going to say three things. Uh, they're sort of really thoughts that have developed in the back of my mind as the two days have gone on. Um, I'll just say two, two brief things while I'm framing these. One is that, uh, well, um, so I've been thinking a lot in my own work recently about Spencer and, and not plays, but play. Mm -hmm. um, so this springs to some degree from, I think it's very helpful for me to think through some of those issues in relation to things that have been said about the drama. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that because my teaching year doesn't end until Friday, I haven't been at every minute of this conference, I have to dash out and fight fires. So um, <laughs> this should be things that I haven't heard spoken about, but I apologize if anything has in fact been said that I haven't been in the room. Um, the, two, the, the first two things are linked. I was thinking about a dimension of um, the theatre that I again, haven't heard spoken about very much, which um, I was pondering after the performance um, yesterday, during the performance, was um, about costume and dressing up. Um, and I was thinking about um, how Spencer and Shakespeare might help us think about one another in relation to questions of disguise um, and, and dress. Um, there were a couple of different dimensions a couple of directions sorry, in which one might take that. Um, one is to do with um, a point that uh, Suzanne made this morning about um, how you bring memory onto the stage. Um, and I was thinking about the Sally Brass and Jones book about the materials of memory, and that is one way the costume has been understood. The way that, that other stories, um, sort of other backstories, other histories and pasts can be made present. So that was one possible way to think about that. But the other way, I think, is just about. Um, the way that, that pairing and doubling and disguise work in, in Spencer's poem and in um, Shakespeare's plays, which is, I don't think I'd ever thought about those in relation to one another, although I thought about it in relation to each of them separately. But things like the, the sort of relative instability of disguises, the extent to which disguise is consistent or firm in a Shakespearean comedy. Um, I've always been fascinated by the ease with which Archimago is seen through at the end of book one when he comes back in in disguise. It's worked pretty well in the life of this Archimago. <laughs> like, it's just obvious. I mean, it's, yeah, that's him, right? 
um, and, um, and other moments of sort of obviousness or, or appeals to obviousness in, in Shakespeare. So I'm thinking about um, Hamlet's wish to see his father and Claudius as obviously this man is superior to this man. So there's something interesting in both of them, I think, about what at times wanted people to be indistinguishable or, or um, for that to be a sort of acceptable uh, convention, but also sort of playing with that in terms of how stable that remains across their work. The second thing that's slightly linked, um, it goes back to some of the discussion about Chaucer yesterday, um, which made me think about what Dryden says about um, Spencer believing that he had the soul of Chaucer um, transfused into him. And I did think that might be, I've always been intrigued by that, well, you know, what does one do with that uh, <laughs> little detail? Um, but um, it did seem to me like it might be an interesting idea to revisit in relation to the question of performance and acting, um, and thinking about acting as a, as a way of inhabiting another person. Um, partly because I think Spencer's, the, part of the interest of the driving to me has always been that it makes the kind of what, what are quite obviously, in some sense, meta-poetic moments in the Fairy Queen. I think about the, the false Una and the false Florimel, where you have a kind of spirit that's into a body. Those are obviously, in some sense, about him as a poet, but it becomes all, all the more interesting when you think of actual um, the inhabiting of oneself by another as a way of thinking about inspiration. Uh, as soon as you put that Chaucer idea into the background of the Fairy Queen, it raises a whole interesting question about to, you know, to whom do these words belong, from where do we think of them as issuing? Um, and I wonder if, if that, in some sense, pushes us as it. So, and I'm thinking partly here about um, the prophetic mode and the prophet as being sort of spoken to, but also about something that, um, that, that you said this morning, Linda, about um, you use the phrase porosity and reciprocal infection to think about performance. Uh, and I wonder if yeah, that might be an interesting way to think about inspiration and poetic voice as, as Spencer understands it. So that's my second thing. And my third and final thing, which is more of a sort of provocative uh, suggestion, goes back to David Lindley's um, claim that a cartoon of the Fairy Queen would be, would be the best version. I wanted to. Um, Offer a better version of uh, <laughs> cartoon, uh, and, the, and the basis for me you want to do this is that um, I think a, a cartoon would, would potentially be too uh, perfect in its ability to actually capture the kind of fully illusory um, transformations of the fairy queen. Well, I'm suggesting you'll instantly see where I'm going with this if I hold up this book. It's Kenneth Groves' book on the puppet. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Groves, of course, started obviously as a great Spencer critic, um, and there's an obvious continuity between his thinking about uh, idolatry and, 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 and so on in the early book and his later stuff on puppets. He doesn't mention Spencer anywhere in this, but he does say the following, I'll just read this one paragraph. He says, the curious law is that the, is that the liveliness of a puppet on stage in movement and voice must incorporate something of the puppet's lack of life, or it's belonging to a different kind of life. The very stories that the puppets are invited to tell, or the characters they imitate, must be fitted to their puppetness and yet transfigure it. This is one reason why so many puppet traditions draw on rawly simplified materials of myth, fairy tale, popular legend, or biblical story, as well as farce and satire. The puppet stage more easily than the human stage can show us the speaking dog, the handless child, the reborn corpse, the weeping statue, the enchanted ring. It is also readily pulled into use as a vehicle for moral fable and allegory. As an allegory with its implicit surrealism, the puppet world may be composed of robotic or demonic creatures, demonic creatures, or of autonomous animated parts of a living whole, a hand, ear, or eye, even a shadow cut free from the body which casts it. Remnants that would ordinarily by themselves be dead can come alive and threaten the living, supplanting or disordering the rules of the world. So a puppet is very queen. I've no idea if there's ever been one. He, he writes very movingly in the book about puppet versions of Shakespeare, which kind of mix puppet and human performers. But a lot of what's been said, I'm thinking back to the sort of um, question about uh, the panel yesterday about sort of beyond the human, um, a lot, and a lot of what's been said of it has made me think in different ways about the way in which Spencer blurs 
um, human and the non-human, the way in which these allegorical figures can seem both above and, beyond, and below human being, and the public's ability to do both of those at once or at different times to transcend and to, and to fall short. Um, that seems like an intriguing way to think about. Um, uh, scholars of theatre sort of tend to fold puppets into the wider category of performing objects, mm-hmm. puppets, masks, and other things. Um, and so I wonder if the category of the performing object mm-hmm. uh, might be yeah. useful on the question of thinking about that. Thank you, Joe. I'm going to follow your pattern of a three-point plan, except I think mine is a two-and-a-half one. Anyway, um, let's see how it goes. Yesterday was revelatory, really. I was sitting there, and it was as if I was being rocked by these crosswinds the whole time. I was just being introduced to things at slant all the time, and, and it was tremendously um, revealing about just new ways of, of thinking about loads of things that were not to do with theatricality or performance at all. And indeed, I began to think increasingly that, of course, we're in the globe, and of course, we're thinking principally about theatre. But it seemed to me increasingly the theatrical genres were not the genres of performance that were really illuminating. Um, we were talking a lot about mask and pageant and university comedy and all of that. Um, but it seemed to me that the things that worked best in performance, both here and in the theatre last night, were actually storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed to me that these worked as orality, an orality that was not theatrical. Um, and I was reminded, actually, for the first time in a long time, really, of those great articles that came out of the, the MLA in the 1930s, Jen, Roy Jen, was it Jenkins? Um, on uh, Irish storytelling, for example, um, and the influence of things like the Sons of Miletius and things like that. So, storytelling, orality, and Dina's suggestion of the tales from Spencer, I thought, encapsulated that sense. Um, What worked least well, I think, was the things that really needed eyes. Um, And the the things that need eyes and minds, I think, um, were particularly political things. So, yesterday morning, I thought that the article thing didn't work well because it wasn't a story. And it wasn't a narrative, it was an argument. And it was an argument that needed us to engage with it. Engage with it both critically, but even on a more principled level, to understand it fully. Um, And I was also struck by a thing that might have seemed to be predisposed for theatricality or for staging, which was the dialogue. Because I think the point that Derek made this morning about giving a psychological Um, integrity to people removes us from the need to deal with ideas as ideas, as abstractions, and to challenge them in different ways. I mean, I was surprised that some people found uh, that kind of double-voicedness of um, Irenaeus' speech last night in some way moving, Um, because I think that it shows a kind of a dangerous persuasiveness of his characterization. He said that he says, after all, that he would, any stony heart would be moved to tears. But of course, what he means is, but they'd be fools. But I'm not. I'm not. And so I don't think, in a way, we were not meant to be moved by this. But I think if it's been enacted, we are moved. There are two different ways in which the theatricalization, one, a, a, a very abstract thing that didn't uh, transfer in some way, and then something else that was perhaps even more dangerous. So, storytelling, back to storytelling. 
And it, is a, it really brings us to a genre that hasn't been talked about much at all and wasn't mentioned until Andrew mentioned it, which is romance. Because, of course, storytelling and, and indeed those Irish stories, which, of course, link completely to the Arthurian stories, um, are romance stories. And so we get on to my second point, which is about romance in a way. The Master Cupid, which we encountered in a little bit last night, talks about wanton bards, and I want to talk about bards. <laughs> um, I want to talk about Spencer and the bards. Um, it's a thing I, I tend to do, I'm afraid. Um, but I want you to think of something that would be lovely to see as a map right now, which is a map of the Monster Plantation, which was produced in the early 1590s. And it shows the plantation castles which it numbers and, and, and inscribes. And then it has a lot of other castles and funny hillocky, hummocky things that look like they could be sort of stranded waves or something like that. <clears throat> but uh, the practice time begins to recognize these as Irish castles, in fact. Um, and what we see if we start populating these unidentified castles is we start seeing not only Gaelic courts, with the castles of Gaelic poets, because you must remember that a Gaelic poet isn't somebody in a garret, if there were a garret in an Irish castle. Um, he is somebody in a castle, because he is a member of the aristocracy. And Spencer's castle in Kilcolman is surrounded by poets' castles. So I want to think about the proximity of that and what it tells us about one performance tradition that we haven't been thinking about at all, which is the performance tradition with which he was surrounded for an awful lot of the time which he was writing. Um, and that is, of course, the Gaelic tradition. So two shots of that. One, if we go just to the east, just barely to the east of uh, Kilcolman, we have Lord Roach's castle, which is um, identified on that map. And he, you will remember, when litigating with Spencer, charges, among other things, that one night he did stay in his castle, in the castle of his chief bard. A person who is identified when Shakespeare complains again about this, that uh, the poet was, in fact, sanctioned subsequently by Lord Roach for having stayed in his castle, he identifies him as Tag O'Leave. One of the, I can't remember which one it is, of the great 10 volume compendiums of Spencer collected works, um, works thinks about this one. It sees an O, and a bit like Obama when he visited Ireland, um, they stick in an apostrophe and he becomes Peg O line. Um, but he is obviously Peg Olive, Olive being the word for the, the most senior of the seven categories of art. Um, so he's obviously the Olive. The, the professor poet of, the, of Lord Roach. And no poetry survives from Lord Roach's poet, poet um, chief poet of the, of the moment, but it was a poetic family called the O'Dawling. We have a lot of um, works from his son, for example, which is just ever so slightly later. Um, so think about that. Think about visiting this poet, not in his not in some hall, not in some miserable cabin, but in his castle. Don't tell me there wasn't entertainment that night. And we have to think also of the person who tells him all about bardic poetry. He's obviously getting that from somebody 
by, we might kind of zone in on Pai, oh, this is the person with the key to all mythologies, but I think there are people in all of these other castles. And other nights, there are long winters in North Munster, and there were entertainments. So we have to think about what that sort of stuff was. Okay, so if we move to the west, we go just, a sort of a morning's ride will bring us to Duhallow. And Duhallow in, in the map is really replete with castles because it's one of the most intense areas of poetic activity. Um, the chief points of the Clan Carthy, um, the Earls of, of Clan Carthy, and the Earls of Desmond both had their seats in exactly that area. So here are really powerful poetic families. And one of them, um, a guy called Angus O'Dolly, they're all called O'Dolly, it's a nightmare trying to work out who's who and who's his, who's cousin. They're all these different bardic families, so we, we must keep these separate from our brooches O'Dolly. But anyway, Angus O'Dolly, I've been looking at, at some religious poetry of his recently, and in one I was surprised, in two different ones in fact, I was surprised two different hymns to the Blessed Virgin. I was surprised to find in one a story about a child who imbues his hand in his mother's blood who's lying dead in front of him. He takes it up. And the hand cannot be washed clean except in the end through all kinds of mysterious interventions by deities. Um, and of course, the Blessed Virgin, it is wiped clean. Um, and in the next hymn, he talks about a hermit living in a cave who's visited by a succubus um, who reminds us of course, these two remind us of Radivay and Faustina. I'm not for a moment saying that Spencer is hearing this and rushing home on his horse and writing it up, or that it went in the opposite direction. But I just wanted to think about romance and romance proximity in this context, about a culture not of necessarily influence, though I suspect Spencer had an awful lot more Irish than I used to, to think, um, but of cohabitation and exposure to party uh, performance. It should be mentioned that these so-called bards, bards is a very lonely word in the, in the Irish seven-point um, um, qualification, classification of our Irish poets. The filler is, is the serious word, um, as um, our very first speaker yesterday mentioned. So the, the, the poet himself, the, the Oliver, the filler, is far too grand ever to read his poetry. His poetry is read by a reciter, a person called Jarachara. And we must remember too that last night's three stringed instruments needed to be joined by fourth, which is the harp. Um, so the Rachara is also backed by the harp. So, performance is my third. Um, and I, I was just thinking about the word performance because it has been kind of wanting me. And I've been thinking about performance. That, that word rings a bell. It's used in the, in the view a lot. Checked it. And it's not used in the view a lot. It's actually only used in the view three times. But it means doing something. And the doing something is often quite a military doing something. So here's this moment where Irenaeus says that though no military man myself, I'm able to tell you how you could conquer Ireland. Um, because he was hanging out with Lord Grey, and he uses him as a template for future con conquest. And he's ideal if you're looking for a blueprint for, quote, for the dispeak, the dispeakling, disturbing word, the dispeakling and driving away of all the inhabitants from the countries about him. And to the performance whereof, he says, he required 1,000 men. 
So this performance of conquest, I think, returns us to what Thomas Ward and Aisha were saying earlier about performing consent, but also about performing violence. And so I want to end by talking about another kind of violence that we have, another kind of performance that we haven't been thinking about. Well, it's anodyne enough. It's Spencer in the courts, though the courts weren't very anodyne. But think about his, his stories about all of these chancers um, who are pulling, trying to pull the wool over his eyes at various stage. Think of courtroom dramas. He's constantly attending the assizes in Limerick and Cork. Um, but also I want to think finally about war's theatre of cruelty, about the, you know, there were all of those when Lord deputies and various, like Essex and those people were going through Ireland, there was always each town would greet them with a theatrical performance and an oratorical performance. But their performance was also of beheading and display and really theatricalized performances of violence. So on that grim note. <laughs> okay, you're gonna notice a speech, speed change going from an Irish accent to a Canadian one. Um, in my closing remarks, uh, I want to touch on the theme of Spencerian humor, as in, haha, not, uh, you know, I'm melancholy. Uh, here's a short listing of lines when the audience laughed out loud yesterday, which I will read without much affect, uh, but for the purpose of memory jogging. Um, here we go. I'm ready 54. Yet she delights not in my mirth, nor ruse my smart, but when I laugh, she mocks. Just feel free to laugh. <laughs> and next, what then can move her if, if nor mirth nor moan? She is no woman but a sense of stone. Leaving space for laugh. Uh, <laughs> Cupid. And suddenly a stormy whirlwind blew throughout the house and clapped every door. And again, his name discovered ease on his robe in golden letters ciphered. That's funny. <laughs> Melvin Calador, on which his hungry eye was always bent, that twixt his pleasing tongue and her fair hue, he lost himself. In the uh, Epithalamian, in the first stanza, now lay those sorrowful complaints aside, and having all your hearts with Gerlin's crown. And again, so I unto myself alone will sing, the wood shall to me answer, and my echo rings. <laughs> Not funny! I was actually going to ask you to read the lines, but I was too nervous. So uh, and then, of course, there's August. Hating Toronchiero out, hey ho, Paragot, I left the head in my heart root. It was a desperate shot. <laughs> There rank with I more and more, hey ho, the arrow. Um, anyway, so, okay. We heard the lines of Paragot and Lily three times yesterday, those last ones, which is a recipe for joke disaster, <laughs> since it takes away the moment of surprise. And yet consider the progression when the lines in the Pilagot, uh, Willy Paragot in the first panel were read out loud uh, in a more serious vein, there was zero laughter, only thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And then in the following panel, those same lines got a solid laugh, and in the evening show they received something of an outburst. Uh, the first half of this eclogue, which I suspect most people weren't familiar with before today, is downright funny, and it's also downright theatrical. Um, I want to close out my five minutes <laughs> 
of International Spencer Society fame uh, with, a short, <laughs> with a short point about how I think we can read this passage connected to forms of theatricality that preceded. In a way, I present a very short cultural performance in the vein of what actually Patricia just did, and in the vein of Andrew Hatfield and Jim Ellis's panel, uh, specifically to quote Andrew, dramatic performance not only linked to the stage. And now it's going to do an Irish act or a uh, British accent, but I <laughs> Where Spencer probably learned the eclogue was in grammar school, since eclogue collections by both Virgil and Manchuan were ubiquitous in the period, even registered in the English stock titles on the stationer's registry, that'd be uh, a bit later. Concerning eclogues, education theorists in the period, Thomas Eliot says explicitly that the, quote, Pratt and controversies, end quote, of the eclogues are particularly well suited to children. And there are many elements of theater, uh, and there are many elements of theater included in these schoolroom forms, as both Lynn Anderlein and Jeff Dolvin had elaborated upon, as well as Andrew Wadowski today. Uh, the cross-pollination of eclogue, theatricality, and grammar school would also be writ large at Mulcaster's Merchant Taylors, which again a number of people have spoken about. And Spencer may have encountered Virgil in the third form, roughly, so the third. Um, school year and exercises concerned with translation, but he also may have encountered eclogues as poems to be read aloud, and ones that would have resonated with ideas of emulatio or emulation and with disputations during the later years of grammar school. My point is that the poems that E.K. tells us Spencer's August is based upon, in the argument, Virgil's third and seventh eclogues, two singing contests were almost certainly performed in some way in grammar school. And by attending specifically to the form of the eclogue, which is a, form, a point like to note specific forms that a number of people have <coughs> made in both days, um, by attending specifically to the form of the eclogue, a word that Abraham Fleming translates as a, quote, talking together, one gets a better sense of how performance undergirds certain conventions within the eclogue form. And that's form, again, is both trope and as early modern classroom. And then a quick thing I want to note is part of what was interesting about yesterday is that these were actors that were largely unfamiliar with the text. Uh, what if there was more context added, I kept asking myself. What if there was a judge, as there is in Spencer, who had picked a winner out of the round lay singers? And after the singing contest, hey, ho, Willie, who someone identified as the backup singer, persists in the eclogue asking Cuddy to declare who has the victory. It's totally ridiculous, and it's a totally hilarious moment. There seems to be room here for a reading of Spencer being able to, as one of the actors yesterday so eloquently put it, quote, listen to an audience and what they are finding funny. I'm not saying that the Shepherd's calendar with its ornate typography, its absolutely crazy glosses, was meant to be performed in full, but the question I want to pose is, well, do we really know that part of this text uh, weren't composed with performance in mind? And are we doing Spencerian humor specifically a disservice by so privileging the textual and typographical elements of his first pastoral text? Over to you all.
Can I make a very quick note to say I'm delighted that you mentioned Kenneth Gross actually, um, Joe, because actually he had been part of our early discussions and in fact had volunteered a couple of extracts, one of which did make it to the research and action stage last night. So it was it was very nice that you brought it back in. If I may leap on that, I mean, I love that book, Puppet. If you haven't read it, rush out now. Um, one of the things that's very provocative that he mentions there is what it takes to be the guilty conscience we all bear toward inanimate objects. And I think, you know, we've been talking about various forms of ventriloquizing, impositions of will, coercion, um, and structures of power and imposition. And I think, um, you know, that the, the I, I wasn't able to be at the materiality panel yesterday because I was in the other room with the actors, but, but it seems to me that that um, restores some very wonderful threads that also accord with your, your um, adducing costume and potentially stage properties. Mm -hmm. It also links to romance in some nice ways that are another word we speak to address the puppet shows particularly based on Ariosa or they're based on romance tales and yeah. they're kind of lovely fluid moving between um, animate objects, um, resonant stories that draw in a variety of kinds of performers and a variety of kinds of audiences. Um, just to, to follow that up a little bit, um, Joan Cavallo has built a wonderful archive of video performances. Uh, so many of them are also puppet shows. Francis Lee also has well. Uh, so these traditions are actually very accessible to anybody who wants to see what might a puppet show or a section of the film look like. I want to follow up a little bit. Um, one of the, the comments that, one of the things that came to mind. Um, Stephanie was speaking about temporality, the, the problems or the, the sort of different dynamics of the temporality of performance versus the temporality of reading. Um, and to open a question for which I don't begin to have an answer, um, but it seems to be an interesting problem to consider afresh in the light of the discussions we've been having, which is that we always talk about ourselves as reading, right? We're doing a reading of a passage of the fairy queen, we're reading the fairy queen. What we actually mean is that we're reading, right? At one speed or another. Um, the slowness of a close reading um, is one of the things that came to mind, Stephanie, as you were speaking, is that we can't scan a performance, right? We are about the time is that somebody else. Um, but it seems to me that one of the questions we should be asking ourselves today is about the quality, many of the qualities of reading. Right. Do we costume the our mental conjurations of apparitions more um, on a second reading? Do we have does the ability to scan the bits that we, we think we didn't think were interesting on the first reading play into our mental performances for ourselves? To what extent is rereading in a sense that the beginning of a stage of another dramatization of a performance of some kind in our heads that actually is not accessible to us on a first reading when we're getting all the information for the first time. Um, and how then might the text on further rereading be seen to begin to be conditioning in some sense its own further readings. In other words, how does the poem that we think of as teaching us to read itself actually teach us to reread it? Mm. 
I just wanted to um, thank Joe for bringing the words of play um, back into our sort of vocabulary. We, we talked a lot about theatricality, about sort of performance, but we were in the playhouse um, after all. So I just wanted to thank you for sort of bringing that, that word back in. Aisha? I have two good comments. I just I wanted to thank Patricia for that kind of bringing back the Irish context, but also I think for raising a question we have sort of not talked about explicitly, which I think is the problematic framework of illusion and influence, which is I think we don't have a good vocabulary for talking about what, you know, in a different context I've come to think of in terms of disconnected histories, which is there isn't a kind of clear movement or flow of one context into another context, but they often exist in this kind of cognate or parallel or simultaneous relationship where you sort of know there has to be some bleed through and yet it's hard to articulate where and how that might have happened. And, and I think part of what you're signaling there is it was two things. I mean, one is that we need to stop thinking in Irish context as being sort of um, one of erasure took him away from the theaters, uh, and one that is culturally absent in a certain way, but one that's linguistically and culturally rich in precisely the ways we then talk about the European context, for instance. Uh, and the second, I think, there is to think about how do we write a history of those sorts of connections that are not about a kind of smoking gun, like, you know, this must be a moment in this play that is getting reproduced in our language of imitation and illusion. And I think that that's really, I mean, it's important in so many larger ways for early modern studies, but I think you really sort of single that out. And the other, just a quick shout out to Nate, I mean, I was very struck by the funniness of the whole couple of days, partly because a few years ago I tried to organize a Spencer Roundtable session on Spencer and humor, or Spencer and comedy, and I had no takers. <laughs> And now people looked at me and said, like, what do we say? <laughs> <laughs> I have done that, but I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, but it was really interesting that the reaction was, oh, stage and serious Spencer. And I was just so heartened that we were all laughing and that there is clearly this sense of, no, he's really, I've always thought Spencer is funny in a way that Milton is just not funny. <laughs> 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 I need to follow up on the issue of temporality here because I've made promises about getting us to a reception. Will, do you have some closing reflections to share with us? Um, well, it, this has been really, it's been really interesting for us. This morning, one of our, uh, the research team was tickled by the idea that the Playhouse is now the cave of despair. It's <laughs> <laughs> really a bar of bliss. <laughs> and what has been really exciting has been the sort of meeting of critical disciplines in the past two days. And we've been working outside of the dramatic canon, which is what we typically work on um, uh, 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 here, although not, not exclusively. And the sort of the, the, the enjoyment and provocation of seeing those two disciplines meet and seeing what happens when performances, research, or practices, research methodologies are kind of thrown at a, a, a non-dramatic text and a non-dramatic canon, which has its own language to talk about performance in a kind of lyrical mode, in a poetic mode, but not necessarily a dramatic mode. And, and, and what, what comes out when you put those two uh, approaches together? And I think some of the phrases that have come up in just this round table have been really interesting. That um, Patricia was saying she was introduced or reintroduced to things as slant. I think it's a brilliant way of yeah. putting a, a phrase is what happens when you see something in, when you work on something in a performance context, when you're very familiar with it as a scholar. It's that kind of destabilizing or the sort of. Uh, the, 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 the refreshing, if that's, if that's a phrase, of, of possibly familiar material. Uh, and Nathan as well talked about the, the what if uh, of some of the uh, performance offerings we, we, we gave last night, which 
again, you know, what's so fascinating about the performance as research approach is that it, it's not it's not a kind of teleology, it's not sort of this is the this is the presentation and there it is. It's what other questions does this provoke? And what, what can we do now? We've seen and now we've been involved with this kind of enlightenment of the materials. What further questions does that lead to? And it's been brilliant to, 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 to see some of those sort of eruptions kind of bubble up in the course of the past couple of days. Um, and I would I would hope that, that there's sort of more opportunity for these sorts of performances research methodologies to be extended into other areas of certainly only modern studies, but the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other uh, other forms of uh, literary studies. So I, I very much hope uh, that that's the case. And thank you all very much for coming. Thank you. It is clear that there were a number of other people who had questions to ask and comments to offer, and the only consolation I have for you is that that's what a reception is for. <laughs> right now, I'm going to ask Stephanie to uh, close us out. Yeah. So, um, I, just, I guess on behalf of all of the organizers, I wanted to thank you all for these two really extraordinary days, um, and for just being game to think about Spencer in new ways. And some people even sort of coming back to Spencer, so I haven't thought about Spencer much at all, being you know willing to think with us and to experiment with new ways and, and to engage with the performances so beautifully. Um, so I wanted to also thank the Globe um, and the International Spencer Society for supporting this kind of exploration. Um, it's really unique and it's wonderful to have these um, institutions and societies want to uh, help us reimagine things or, or um, view things as slants. Um, and, but I particularly wanted to thank um, Will and Sarah and the research team of the Globe. Um, Robin Craig was the research admin and Jen Edwards is research coordinator. And our team that helped us today was Sam, Beth, and Hannah. And they were also wonderful and helped us sort of not think about things <laughs> like where's the coffee coming from um, um, and sort of also to help us have a sort of larger questions a space for larger questions. Um, and I also really wanted to thank um, Tiffany and Jane um, for their really amazing work and for um, allowing me to join them in, in um, putting this together. Um, it's just, everybody I think has really been very incredible um, on the organizing committee and the members of the Globe. Give them another round of applause. And Thanks for listening to this podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe.